This is Charles Christoph Carter of Serial Dreadfuls, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Ghost Notes. What are ghost notes, you may ask? They consist of letters, emails, texts, and other communications that have found their way to us. We don't include the author's last names, and we alter their first names when asked to do so. Any emphasis in reading is added for dramatic effect. Are these accounts real, imagined, or simply works of fiction? Take a listen. We'll let you decide. This next ghost note is from a listener who wishes to remain anonymous. The individual states that he worked many years as a security professional for a firm whose clients included several large, well-known international corporations. He goes on to state that, while not having personally been involved, what's contained in the transcript he forwarded continues to keep him up at night and has caused him to take up residency in a large city some 50 miles away from his former country home. It's his hope that by sharing this account with the rest of the world, he may find some peace with this quote, unwanted knowledge. My name is Andrew, and I work as an oil surveyor for a very large international petroleum corporation. Me and Danny were scheduled to relieve two other oil surveyors who were part of an exploratory team of six located deep in the Alaskan interior. Travel to this outpost was an all-day affair and consisted of us taking a series of bush planes, hopscotching from makeshift airfield to makeshift airfield, to eventually a medium-sized lake several hundred miles from anything or anyone. By the time we arrived at the lake, the sun was hanging low in the sky. The pilot, Mike, Danny, and I tied the small plane to the floating dock, grabbed our gear, and began the five-mile hike into the woods to the outpost. The sky was a dark, deep blue by the time we arrived at the large clearing. You could still see several feet in front of you. We had been lucky, since it would only be another 15 to 20 minutes before everything went inky black, to the point where you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. We avoided the tree stumps dotting the area and made our way towards the metal buildings connected like hamster tubes that sat in the middle of the open expanse. We immediately knew that something was wrong. The only lights that were on were the exterior lights, and all three of us knew that those lights were on a timer. Danny and I had taken several rotations up here in the recent past, and Mike had stayed here countless times, being one of only three bush pilots close enough to the area to ferry personnel in and out. I remember Danny saying, What the fuck? One hell of a greeting, I remember Mike saying under his breath. Where is everybody, I asked. As the three of us approached the main building, we noticed a faint erratic flickering of light coming through the window of an adjoining structure. The hum of diesel generators filled the night air, so we knew it wasn't a question of whether or not they had run out of fuel or that the generators had gone on the blitz. No, 
The floodlights outside, along with the flashing interior light, were more than enough proof that the site was receiving electricity. The problem wasn't with the equipment. Rather, it was with the people who should have been streaming out of the door to greet us. Six people who hadn't seen another living soul in over four months. The three of us stopped at the stairs to the entranceway of the main building. Danny and I looked at Mike questioningly. If you're thinking about asking me if there's anybody around here that could pose a threat, I'd have to tell you no. When your company approached me about flying you guys in and out of here, I'd thought they had lost their damn minds. There ain't no one here for over 400 miles in any direction. Shit, I don't know if another man past or present has ever seen, let alone walked in these woods. We all exchanged anxious looks and slowly started up the stairs. I led the group. I glanced back to see Mike undo the holster on his hip and rest his hand on the grip of his forty-four caliber. The door to the main building was slightly ajar. I nudged it with the tip of my boot slightly. The heavy door moved a few inches and then stopped. I took a deep breath and pushed the heavy metal door inward. That's when I heard it. At first, I couldn't place it. It didn't belong, not in the situation we found ourselves in. It was the juicy, wet smacking of someone greedily eating with their mouth full, like a dog wolfing its food after not having eaten all day. Then I heard what I can only describe as a low murmur of someone who had clearly lost his or her mind. I say this because it was obvious that whoever was speaking was speaking to themselves in crazed manic tones. I waved Mike forward. I pointed to his firearm and signaled him to take it out of his holster. Mike nodded in understanding. Danny and I looked around the entrance for something to arm ourselves with. It was the first time that I realized, hell, that I think any of us realized how torn up the communications room was. Even in the dim light, we could tell that the radio had been destroyed, along with all the other communications equipment. Danny and I searched the trash remains of the room and managed to find some metal piping to arm ourselves with. The three of us crept down the hallway towards the mess hall, all the time the juicy smacking sounds growing louder and louder. We stopped just short of the mess hall entrance. I slowly poked my head inside the dimly lit room. Against the far wall, off to the side, were two figures. They looked like shadows in an already dim room. One lay on the floor, while the other crouched over top of it, its hands frantically digging into the body of the other like a dog digging a hole for a bone. Cries of excitement and then murmurs of frustration emanated from the shadowy figure, followed by the snaps of bone and the wet slurpings of God knows what. So hungry. So fucking hungry. Mmm. Tastes so good. So good. Mmm. What the fuck? Mike whispered in confusion raising his handgun in the direction of the black forms no more than thirty feet away. Danny stepped beside me and lit up the scene with the LED flashlight he had taken from his belt. We all gasped in horror. Blood and what can only be described as meat stained, splattered, and hung from the walls. There, above what was left of our lead geologist Steve, squatted Bill, our head mechanic. I remember hearing the thud of Danny's flashlight as it fell, 
struck, and rolled across a hard epoxy floor, the impact causing the flashlight's steady bright blue LED beam to switch to a blinking preset SOS pattern. The fast strobe pattern lit the macabre slaughterhouse scene before us like some over-the-top Halloween haunted house tour. My eyes locked on Bill's face. Lord knows I wanted to look away, look at anything, but I couldn't. It was like I was stuck, physically and mentally, held in place by the horror of what was before me. Chunks of crimson flesh lay suspended in the curls of Bill's honey-blonde beard. His face was streaked black with dried blood. Where his lips had once been were the pale pink and bright whites of his gums and teeth, the latter of which looked pointed, as if they had been intentionally sharpened. His fingers! What the hell happened to his fingers? Mike gasped. Bill cocked his head and looked at us, almost confused, his attention broken from devouring his colleague. He turned his head and looked down at his own fingers, quizzically, almost self-consciously. I caught Danny and Mike in my peripheral vision as we all followed Bill's gaze. It's not that Bill's fingers were gone, in the literal sense. No, they were still there. It was the fact that the tips of all eight of his fingers looked like they had been chewed or gnawed to the very bone. There were no nails or flesh, just the pointy tips of Bill's finger bones in their place. Bill's gaze left his hands and instead went back to the cavity he had dug into Steve's chest. With lightning speed, Bill dove headfirst into that slick, savage crimson hole, burrowing his face in as far as he could, all the while the sound of his jawbone working furiously. We all looked on in shock, frozen in place, after what seemed like an eternity, but was probably only a matter of seconds, Bill raised his head out of Steve's chest and stared with what could only be characterized as sorrow at what remained of Steve. All gone. All gone. No more organ meats. No more tasties. Need more tasties. Want more tasties. Want more tasties, Bill murmured, the excitement in his voice increasing until his voice became what could only be described as a banshee scream. Bill quickly jerked his head in our direction, snarling. His face was caked with the blood, excrement, and shards of bone from Steve's body. The blue LED reflected off of Bill's sharpened teeth, causing the saliva and blood-covered pieces of meat that were stuck between them to glisten eerily. Bill stood up slowly, shakily weaving back and forth. His distended belly had torn through his work shirt and bulged several inches out from and over his belt. The skin on his stomach that was visible was discolored and mottled in appearance. Bill's eyes shined brightly as he snapped his jaws together over and over again, the clack of his teeth ringing dully through the large room. He looked from Mike to Danny to me and back to Mike, like he was sizing us up. Bill lurched forward, unsteadily. As he did, his belly split open, emptying his intestines, organs, and what seemed to be a mountain of raw meat onto the floor. The smell! Oh, almost dropped me to my knees. Bill looked down at the mountain of gore beneath him. Hungry! He slowly raised his head, looking up at us. Tasties! Bill snarled as he rushed towards me. 
The sound of an explosion, followed by a high-pitched whine, filled my ears as I stared dumbfounded at the impossibility charging towards me. The sound of another explosion, no, a gunshot, this time more muted than before. I remember turning to see Mike standing with his feet shoulder-width apart, a grimace of disgust and fear on his face, his forty-four caliber raised to eye level, smoke wafting from his barrel. The gunshots had slammed Bill against the wall, dead, I hoped. A hole in the head and a hole in the heart. Bill's blue eyes were fixed, staring at something a million miles away. As Mike, Danny, and I finally took a breath, a mist rose from within Bill's body, wafting low to the floor and underneath the door leading to the dormitories. The three of us looked at each other in disbelief. Mike carefully approached the bodies of Steve and Bill. He placed a bullet in Steve's head and one where his heart should have been. How'd you know? I remember Danny asking Mike. I didn't, exactly. The zombie films all say to shoot them in the head. The Indians in Inuit in these parts say to destroy their hearts, Mike replied. Indians? Zombies? I asked. Mike shook his head. No, not zombies. Wendigos, Mike said somberly. You're shitting me, Danny replied. Mike pointed at the two bodies of his revolver. You explain this to me, then. Look at Bill's teeth and fingers. They're sharpened to points like weapons. No, 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 no way. Bill just lost his shit and went psychotic, that's all, Danny countered. Come on, Danny, you saw it yourself. Bill kept moving and speaking even after all his guts fell onto the floor. How do you explain that, I asked. Silence. There was nothing but silence in the mess hall for several minutes. What do we do, I asked. What do we do, Mike responded incredulously. We fucking beat it back to the plane and get the hell out of here is what we do. Are you on fucking drugs? What about everybody else? Danny asked. Fuck everybody else. Someone has to live to tell the story, and guess what? That someone is going to be me. You two can join me if you want, but I'm fucking out of here. Mike spun on his heels and walked quickly out of the mess hall towards the communications room. We'll contact the authorities when we get in radio range. Mike called over his shoulder. No reason for us to... Those were the last words Mike would ever utter. Deborah, the base doctor, and Hank, an organic chemist who the corporation had recently flown up, burst through the door we had come through only moments before and tackled Mike to the floor, all teeth and nails. Danny and I wailed on Deborah and Hank with our pipes for all we were worth, but they were unstoppable as they devoured Mike alive. Despite literally caving in their skulls of our pipes, neither of them stopped or slowed their onslaught. Hank burrowed his head into Mike's stomach, his jaws never stopping once, while Deborah tore into Mike's face, devouring the soft bits of flesh as fast as she could, like it was a pie-eating contest. Mike's high-pitched shrieks filled our ears as we stomped, kicked, and beat Deborah and Hank over and over again for all we were worth. A jet of blood shot across the room as Deborah chewed through Mike's carotid artery. After a few seconds, Mike's cries died, as did Mike. And all the confusion and horror, I remember Danny shaking my shoulder hard. We gotta get the fuck out of here. Mike's gone. There's nothing we can do. I heard them before I saw them. Their feral screams muted the sounds of Deborah and Hank feasting on what was left of Mike's body. I looked up and noticed two figures outside, sprinting toward our position. I pointed. Danny was suddenly rooted where he stood. Jaw slack in disbelief at the speed with which the two figures outside moved. 
Duffy and Mac, we can't go out there. Come on, I screamed as I retreated back to the mess hall and into the dormitories as fast as I could. By the speed at which they were running, Duffy and Mac would be on us in a matter of seconds. Their screams were deafening and the thing of nightmares. They were the screams of men who had lost all reason and sense. The screams of primal, single-minded predators. The screams of monsters. I ran as fast as I'd ever run in my life, Danny right behind me so close I could feel his breath on my neck. Oh God, oh God, Danny panted. He burst through the dormitory doors almost together, the front of Danny's chest almost glued to my back. Once inside, I slammed the doors shut and slipped the pipe I'd been carrying through the handles of the double doors, barring them. Two seconds later, it sounded like a freight train had crashed against the other side of the doors. The force was so great that I could see the pipe flex under it. Danny and I jumped back. The echoes of fists pounding on the metal skin of the double doors, along with the screech of nails or bone against metal, filled the room, as did the screams and shrieks of anger and rage that came from Duffy and Mac being denied the meat they so desperately wanted. Fuck! The side entrance! Danny screamed out in sudden realization. My eyes went wide with fear as I imagined Duffy or Mac moving at lightning speed towards those doors right this minute. Before I could say anything, Danny was gone, sprinting full out towards a single metal door at the back of the room. I followed on his heels, not wanting to be left alone and not trusting the strength of the metal pipe, keeping the monsters on the other side of the door at bay. Danny and I damn near broke through the door at the opposite end of the dormitory, sliding, almost losing our balance on the slick epoxy floor. We sprinted down the hallway, past the machine shop and the labs, to the equipment area where the supplies and two four-wheelers were kept. We were relieved to see that the large automatic retractable door was closed to the night outside. Its controls had been destroyed. Danny and I both stopped to catch our breaths. Thank God, Danny gasped between breaths. That's when I noticed the single door to the right of the much larger retractable door. I saw its doorknob turn back and forth slightly, as if someone were testing it to see if it were unlocked. Again, my eyes went wide with fear as I raced to the door, unbuckling my nylon web belt and yanking it through the belt loops of my pants. I saw the door open slightly, the bright white of the exterior lights cutting through, forming a thin line of light on the concrete floor. I raised my shoulder, leaned in, and crashed into the door like a linebacker crashing into a fullback. The door slammed shut, shuddering within its frame. I frantically tied my belt to the doorknob, wrapping it around several times. The doorknob turned back and forth violently as the door pushed open, this time more than before. I slammed back into the door, using all of my weight to close it while simultaneously looking for something, anything, to tie the free end of my belt to. That's when I noticed a water spigot lowered down, protruding from the wall. I leaned back, putting my weight against the door as I pulled the free end of my belt with all of my strength tying it off at the spigot. I could only hope that this would be enough to stop whatever was on the other side from coming in, enough for us to at least find something more substantial to use to bar the door and allow us to escape to another part of the small complex. I screamed for Danny to help me, to help us. In a panic, I looked for something else to use to bar the door with. As I turned around, that's when I saw it. A trail of mist had wrapped itself around Danny's legs and was making its way up his body. In our panic, Danny and I had forgotten about the mist that had escaped Bill's body after Mike had shot him. 
Danny stood rooted to the spot. The veins in his forehead and neck bulged as he strained to break away, the trembling of his body being the only successful movement he could achieve. He whimpered as the greasy gray and black mist that looked more like smoke encapsulated him. Not knowing what else to do, I pulled the lighter from my front pocket, tore off a piece of cardboard from one of the many cardboard boxes lining the shelves, and lit it. Using the makeshift torch, I attacked the smoky mist, driving it from Danny just as it began to make its way into his nostrils and mouth. The mist lurched away from the fire as if it were a living being. The places where I burned it fell to the floor like blackened cobwebs. I chased it away from Danny and towards the closed doors, changing my angle of attack in order to drive the mist into a corner so that I could burn the rest of it. It was as if the mist anticipated what I was doing, what I was planning. It shot to the left, undulating wildly in the air as it quickly dove down to the floor and escaped beneath the door I had just secured with my belt. I ran back to Danny, who stood weaving back and forth like a punch-drunk prizefighter. I grabbed Danny by the shoulders, shaking him from the daze he was in. Danny, are you okay? Danny, I screamed, gently smacking his face. Danny bent over at the waist, coughing so hard that he dry-heaved several times in succession. Small billows of mist escaped from his nostrils and mouth. He used his sleeve to wipe the spittle hanging from his bottom lip and chin. What? Huh? Danny asked as he slowly stood up. We gotta move. We're not safe here. We need to get to the weapons locker. Danny shook his head, rubbing his eyes hard, trying to get his bearings. Yeah, I'm with you. Let's go, he said as he staggered back towards the entrance of the equipment room. The weapons locker was in a small alcove off to the left of the equipment room entrance. Beyond it lay what we called Command Central, a large second-story conference room slash logistics center with a panoramic view of the site. The weapons locker had been totally ransacked. Its pale blue, steel lattice doors hung open wide, its shelves bare. Where the hell are the shotguns? Danny questioned angrily. Where in the fuck are the rifles? Danny picked up an empty cardboard ammunition box, one of the multitudes that littered the floor. Where is everything? He screamed, enraged. I scanned the area, looking for an answer. That's when I saw the large streak of blood on the wall at the foot of the stairs that led up to Command Central. Hey, I said, catching Danny's attention. I pointed, directing his gaze to the bloody streak on the wall. Danny and I grabbed whatever we could find of use that had fallen to the bottom of the weapons locker and that lay scattered on the floor. It didn't add up to much. Just a couple of flare guns and a few flares. We proceeded to shove as much as we could into the pockets of our jackets and pants. We mounted the steps. I took the lead, flare gun held out in front of me, hands trembling. I was scared out of my mind. I squeezed the trigger of the flare gun slightly, wanting to get the shot off as quickly as I could, just in case I ran into one of those monsters. The streak of blood that had caught my attention had been just the tip of the iceberg. The stairs and walls of the stairwell were covered with blood. Steel pellets from shotgun shells peppered the bloody steps, making what was already a slick surface that much more slippery. I counted all six of them. Bill, Steve, Deborah, Hank, Duffy, and Mac. Who else is there? I whispered to Danny over my shoulder. Don't know. Maybe no one. But if it is someone else, and they're one of those things... We're going to have to bring it or we're fucked. I nodded my agreement as I turned the corner of the stairwell. The door to Command Central was wide open. 
The bullet holes in the door and the stairwell walls were proof that one hell of a fight had taken place here. I carefully pushed the door inward and eased into the enormous room. My head was on a swivel, looking left and right. Once Danny cleared the door, he shut it quickly while I trained my flare gun on whatever or whoever may have been hiding behind it, but there was no one. Danny locked the door. The place smelled like hell. Used cans of tuna fish, stew, and corned beef hash flowed out of the gray plastic garbage can that sat next to the automatic coffee maker. Several empty water jugs were arranged beside the water cooler. The water cooler itself had only one half of a jug of water remaining. From what I could tell, that half-full jug of water was all that was left. Danny and I would have to ration it. Two of the five flat-panel screens in the room appeared to be running pre-recorded footage. The remaining three showed live security footage from the cameras placed around the base. Deborah, Hank, Duffy, and Mac were nowhere to be seen. I turned away when what was left of Mike's body appeared on screen. The portion of his body that was visible had almost been entirely skeletonized, as if by vultures. The bones of his arms and ribs had been broken, a black void inside each one where marrow had been only minutes before. I felt the bile rise in my throat and heard the ringing begin in my ears. Danny's voice sounded distant and my vision started to go. I broke out in a cold, clammy sweat. I was blacking out. I slapped my own face with a hand that tingled and was trying to go numb. I slumped against the wall, resting my head on its cool surface, trying to get myself together. Hey Drew, you okay man? Danny asked, concerned in his voice. I wiped the beads of sweat from my face and righted myself. Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. It was just... I pointed to the screens. Danny grimaced and nodded his head knowingly. Yeah, I know. I had had enough. I didn't want to look at those flat panels anymore. All they did was remind me of just how upside down my world had become. The only good thing that had come from what I had just seen, if you could even call it that, was that it had inspired enough terror within me to make me laser focus on my survival, on getting out of here. Neither Danny nor I spoke as we began to take inventory of what was in the room. The two shotguns from the weapons locker lay scattered on the floor one by the conference table and the other by the door. One rifle was leaned against a bank of windows. The other rifle was leaned against a bank of windows opposite the first rifle. Disposable coffee cups filled with ammunition for the rifles lined the windowsills around the entirety of the enormous room. Shotgun shells were arranged in groups across the top of the conference table, end up, ready to be loaded. Steve, I said, the sudden realization popping into my mind, Steve's the one who raided the weapons locker. He barricaded himself in here. What happened? Danny asked. He opened the door for some reason, I replied. I don't think the others breached the door. There's no blood inside, I said as I motioned across the room. Only in the stairwell. Why the hell would he have opened the door with those things out there? No idea, I replied. Whose blood is that out there? Danny continued. I think it's Steve's. I think he was overpowered and killed. I responded. Danny tapped the toe of his right boot rapidly as he ran both hands through his hair. Enough of this shit, Danny cursed under his breath, his face contorted into a snarl. Danny and I set about checking the rifles and shotguns. The rifles were fully loaded, but the shotguns were empty. There was blood on both shotguns, and what appeared to be hair and a piece of scalp on the butt of one. 
As I quickly loaded one of the shotguns, my attention was drawn to the two flat panels running pre-recorded video. The first panel showed Bill standing outside at the edge of the site, staring into the forest. The timestamp on the security video showed that the footage was six days old. The second panel showed Bill scratching at a tree on the edge of the site with his bare hands, ravenously eating the bark he tore off. The timestamp on this video was three days ago. Hey, take a look at this shit, I called to Danny. Danny stopped loading shells into his shotgun and stared at the monitors. What the hell is he doing? Danny asked. Beats me, but that is definitely weird as shit, I replied. We watched both video feeds for several more minutes. It wasn't long before something popped up, something that caught our attention. Who's he talking to? Danny asked. It looks like someone in the woods, I replied. I can't see who it is, though. Well, whatever they just said to him, he sure didn't like it, Danny stated. Danny was right. Bill was facing the woods on the video feed. Suddenly, he motioned wildly with his hands, grabbed the sides of his head and began to scream as he fell to his knees. He curled into a fetal position and began rocking himself back and forth on his side. Looks like he's losing his damn mind, Danny exclaimed. I pointed to the footage of Bill tearing the bark off of trees and then eating it. I beg to differ. That is what losing your mind looks like, I replied. Turns out we were both wrong. After a few more minutes, the video feed on both monitors suddenly showed Bill tied to a steel chair, Mac and Duffy standing behind and on either side of him, forcibly holding him down. Bill's mouth was a bloody mess. Deborah's voice cut in, stating the time and date of the interview. Danny and I watched, mouths agape, as Deborah, who was somewhere off screen, asked Bill why he had hurt himself, why he had taken a file to his teeth. Because it itched something awful. What about now? Do your teeth itch now? Deborah asked. Bill shook his head no. Bill, tell us what happened to all the meat in the freezer, Deborah continued. Bill became skittish and squirmed in his seat. Mac and Duffy leaned their weight onto Bill's shoulders, pressing him down. Hungry, Bill whispered under his breath. I'm sorry, Bill. I couldn't make that out. What did you just say? Deborah asked. I was hungry, you bitch, and I still am, Bill exclaimed, overpowering Mac and Duffy as he shot up to his feet. With the chair still attached, he lunged at Deborah off screen. Her screams of fright could be heard over the commotion as Mac and Duffy tried to restrain Bill. Steve rushed into frame to aid the two, punching Bill in the face and head until Mac and Duffy were able to get control over Bill. Deborah suddenly rushed into frame, holding a syringe which she administered to Bill. Bill's body went slack. Wendigo psychosis, Deborah gasped breathlessly. Wendigo psychosis? You've got to be shitting me. How about good old-fashioned crazy for a diagnosis, Steve countered. Wendigo? What in the hell's a Wendigo, Mac asked innocently. It's a folk legend, Mac. Something American Indians who lived in the cold climates used to ensure the members of their tribe didn't consume human flesh, Steve responded. Hell, I don't think they even have that legend in these parts. That may be, Steve, but we're talking about Wendigo psychosis here, which is a documented psychological disorder, Deborah countered. Deborah pointed to Bill's limp body. Explain this to me if you have some other hypothesis. And by the way, Steve, just so you don't forget, I'm the fucking doctor here. You're only a geologist, so stay the fuck in your lane. This is fucking bullshit, Steve shouted as he stormed off camera. Danny and I couldn't take our eyes off the screens. After a few seconds, Deborah's interview with Bill continued. 
Who are you talking to outside, Bill? Is there someone else here that we don't know about? Deborah asked. Someone who's making you hurt yourself? Someone who convinced you to steal the food and give it to them? Whatever drug Deborah had dosed Bill with had definitely taken effect. Bill struggled to keep his head straight, and when he spoke, his words were slurred. It always was, Bill slurred. What was, Bill? It. It's as old as the land, and it is hungry. It is always hungry, Bill continued. Did this thing, this it, tell you to destroy the communications equipment? Steve demanded more than asked off camera. Wants us all for itself. Can't remember the last time men came here. So long ago. It seems like a dream. Bill replied. Of all the meat, man tastes the best. Has the best tasties. A shit-eating grin formed itself on Bill's face as he licked his lips. I've had enough of this shit. Let's lock this nut job up and then figure out how we're going to get help, Steve stated. Agreed, Deborah replied. Mac and Duffy nodded their heads. Hank's voice could be heard responding in agreement off camera. The video feed looped back to Bill staring into the forest and eating tree bark. Danny and I looked at each other, our faces blank. What in the hell had we walked into? Our pilot was dead, and neither of us knew how to fly the plane. We spent the next hour brainstorming possible solutions to our dilemma. Danny eventually came up with the solution. If we could get to Mike's plane, we could maybe get out a call for help using its radio. But there was no way we could do that as long as those monsters were running around outside. There was only one thing we could do, had to do, eliminate the threat by killing every single one of those cannibal motherfuckers, period. Danny removed the paracord bracelet from his wrist and unbraided it. He attached one free end to the door handle and another to the trigger of one of the extra flare guns we had. We lifted one of the office chairs onto the top of the conference table. Since I was taller than Danny, I stood on the seat of the office chair, and standing on my tiptoes, I undid the lock to the skylight. Danny held the chair still as I jumped and pulled myself up and out through the skylight and onto the roof. I laid on my stomach and reached down as Danny handed me most of the weapons, ammunition, and water. Before coming up, Danny switched off the lights to the room so we would be alerted if the flare attached to the door handle went off. We laid prone on our stomachs, searching the darkness below for any sign of movement, for any hint of a figure. Where the hell are they? Danny asked. Do me a favor. Shoot a flare onto the ground away from the building. Let's see what happens, I suggested. Danny followed my instructions, the bright red light arcing through the pitch black sky and driving itself into the dirt below. Danny and I put the scopes of our rifles to our eyes and scanned the illuminated area. The ground at the edge of the forest was washed with a smoky haze and undulating red-orange light. I saw a slight movement within the woodline. I held my breath and squeezed the trigger. A shrill scream rang out through the night. The figure I had shot burst through the woods and sprinted towards our position as if it saw us, knew where the shot had come from. Danny and I fired several more times at the figure, finally dropping it to the ground. 
Just like with Bill, a gray and black mist rose from the figure. It hovered over the body of its host for a few seconds, changing color, glowing slightly, before slowly wafting into the forest. Danny and I quickly high-fived each other in celebration. We weren't prepared for what happened next. Screams and shrieks emanated from the forest all around us. The flare that was on the ground dimmed and then petered out. Danny shot another flare in the same general direction. Holy fuck, I shouted. Three forms had surrounded the figure we had just dropped. Even up here we could hear the sounds of bones cracking and flesh being noisily eaten. Danny and I fired round after round into the small crowd. It took several minutes, but we were ultimately successful in putting down the remaining three individuals. As with the last one, the mist that left the bodies on the ground and wafted into the forest had a slight glow to it. Fuck yeah, Danny shouted. He and I high-fived again and made our way through the skylight and down into Command Central. We armed up and left the facility, each of us carrying a rifle, shotgun, ammunition, flare gun, and flares. We made our way to the bodies of what had once been our co-workers. It was a horror show. By this time, though, neither Danny nor I were surprised. All of them were missing their lips. Their teeth had been filed to points, as had the tips of the finger bone of each finger. Their faces were covered with a mixture of dried and fresh blood. Danny and I brought up the idea of burning the bodies, but we thought better of it. We didn't want to waste any time. We just wanted to get out of there. We located the trailhead and hurried through the forest to the plain. Luckily for us, the moon had broken through the clouds, making it possible for us to navigate the woodland trail. As we jogged along the trail, we could hear heavy footsteps keeping pace with us, tree branches loudly breaking on either side of us. It sounded like two freight trains plowing through the forest. More than once I saw the glowing mist that had risen from the bodies, paralleling us, shadowing us. The sounds on either side of us suddenly became louder. Watch out! I screamed as I pushed Danny forward with all of my force. He barely missed colliding with a large swath of the glowing mist. Danny stumbled but was able to catch himself. We were now separated by two large clouds of mist that undulated between us. Run! I shouted. Get help, then come back for me! I screamed as I sprinted back to the facility. I took a chance and looked behind me. I saw Danny bound down the trail like the devil himself was at his heels. I also saw the mist, and it was approaching my position fast, gaining ground. I ran for all I was worth, but I knew that running by itself wouldn't be good enough. What the hell was I going to do? As the facility came into view, I could feel my hackles rise. I knew that the mist was on me. I picked up what seemed to be an already insane pace and ran faster than I had ever run in my life. I took the steps to the communications room three at a time and slammed the door shut behind me. I turned just in time to see the mist begin to seep underneath the door. I took one of the flares from my pocket, lit it, and burned the mist as it came through. But it was no use. More of it was coming inside than I could burn with the flare. It started to swirl around me, and I had to go from burning it to keep it out to burning it to keep it off of me. It was a fight I was quickly losing. I knew that I had to get out of there. I made a break for the equipment room, slamming the door behind me. This time I shucked off my jacket and jammed it in the space between the door and the floor. I knew I wouldn't be able to hold up inside the facility, not for long at least. No, what I needed was a fire, and a big one. I ran to the other side of the equipment room 
and grab two of the gas cans lining the wall. The two four-wheelers are both on lifts and in various states of being repaired. I figured that they hadn't been touched since Bill turned into a, what did Deborah call it, a wendigo? Regardless, they weren't any use to me. I rushed to the door that I had previously secured with my belt. Something told me to look back. There, from under the door and through the ceiling vent came large clouds of mist. I took the knife from my pocket and quickly saw it through the nylon belt that held the door closed. With a shotgun and rifle slung over my shoulder, I grabbed the two gas cans and ran into the night. I knew that I wouldn't get very far before that damn mist finally caught up with me. So, after several yards, I dropped one gas can to the ground at my feet, unscrewed the cap of the gas can in my hand, and poured a large circle of gasoline around me in the dirt. I took the flare gun from my pocket and shot the flare into the gasoline circle, igniting it, just as the mist rushed me from all sides. A high-pitched shriek filled my ears as stringy black gossamer material floated in the air and slowly descended to the ground. The mist withdrew into the darkness but I could feel it out there, watching me, just waiting for me to make the wrong move. I was safe, for now, but I knew that I was screwed for the long term. I only had so much gasoline, and I could only run so many places. The only thing I could do was to place all my hope in Danny, having gotten to the plane and having been successful in getting out a message for help. I didn't even want to think about what would happen if he hadn't made it. The sky lightened to a slate gray. It would be sunrise soon. I thought I would have been less frightened, but I actually found myself more on edge, more aware of and concerned for my mortality. I could feel the tension that was already in the air increase, and a foreboding like I had never experienced before, one so oppressive and heavy that it made me physically ill. I carefully stoked the fire with more gasoline, Try not to blow myself up in the process, but I knew it was only a matter of time before I ran out of gasoline or dropped from exhaustion, no longer capable of tending to the fire. I heard the sound of footsteps behind me. I spun around, shotgun at the ready. There was nothing there. Hey, called a voice from behind. I spun back around again. Nothing there. A cacophony of laughter erupted from the forest on all sides. It was a mocking laughter, made up of the voices of men, women, and children, but underneath those voices was a deep, guttural, inhuman laughter. I could have screamed, show yourself, or come get me, you coward, but why? What was the use? I knew damn well what this thing was doing. It was breaking me down. Whether it broke me down slowly or quickly, well, that was up to me up to how much resolve I had, but both it and I knew that it was only a matter of time. It wasn't long before Danny showed up and took a position close to the still-burning ring of fire that surrounded me. It was Danny's body for sure, but it wasn't Danny who was inside. I could tell by the way he stood, the set to his jaw, the confidence in his eyes. His eyes. There was a look in Danny's brown eyes that seemed to be as old as the earth itself. Hey, Drew, Danny said, a sly smirk appearing on his face. I'm so sorry, Danny, I replied, ignoring altogether what that thing had just said. You know how this ends, Drew, Danny continued. No, how does it end, you fucker, I responded. 
The laughter that bellowed out of Danny sent chills down my spine and shook me to my very core. It was louder than anything that could possibly come out of a man. It was everything I could do not to shit my pants right then and there. You have courage. That's good. The meat of those like you always tastes the sweetest, Danny growled, showing a mouth full of razor-sharp, dagger-like teeth and not the roughly pointed teeth of my colleagues whose bodies lay dead on the ground several yards away. You're not like the others, I said without thinking. Danny smiled cruelly and shook his head no, as he changed before my eyes, growing suddenly taller, broader, more muscular. The nails of his fingers extended into blackened talons. He looked more like a hell-born apex predator from a fever dream than a slightly built man of thirty-one. What you saw? That chaff over there? Danny said as he pointed to the bodies of my friends lying on the ground. Were only pieces of me. Representatives. Emissaries. You should be honored, he chuckled. You have the rare privilege of seeing and conversing with me while I'm in my full form. Well, at least a form that your tiny, simple mind can digest and comprehend without breaking entirely. He motioned mockingly at the ring of fire surrounding me. Give up, Drew. I promise I'll make it quick. Tell you what. I'll tear your throat up before I start in on you. By the time I begin eating your liver, you'll be in shock. I promise. You won't feel a thing. Well, that's not entirely true. Let's just say that at that point, you won't feel anything for much longer. Danny laughed. What the fuck are you? I asked, ignoring what Danny had just said. I'm your friend, Dan. Danny began. Don't fucking insult me. I know you're not Danny. The thing that was wearing Danny like a suit straightened his slightly hunched posture, narrowed his eyes and bored a hole through my forehead with an unwavering gaze. Ancient, that's what I am. The female over there was partly right, Danny said as he motioned to the parts of Deborah's body, which were mixed up and scattered among the bodies of the others. The ones who crossed the land bridge to the west gave me one name. The men and women before them, who walked these lands in the days before the great deluge, gave me another. In truthfulness, none of it matters. I am, I exist, and I hunger, Danny continued. I raised a shotgun to my eyes, leveling the barrel at Danny's chest. Danny gave me a full-toothed grin. Go ahead, it won't matter. Glad to hear it, I snarled as I squeezed the trigger. There was a hole in Danny's torso large enough to pass a watermelon through. Danny looked down at his chest and stomach. He bent slightly and peered through the newly formed hole in his body and out to the ground that was visible on the other side. Danny gazed at me, a disappointed look on his face. He dropped to his knees, a blank look overtaking his features, then fell onto his side. I immediately poured more gasoline on the ring of fire surrounding me and waited. I didn't have to wait long. A large plume of mist escaped from Danny's mouth and shot to the sky as if from a smokestack. It rose and swirled no more than thirty feet into the air, gathering to the size of a massive thunderhead. Bolts of electricity flashed from within the mist as it boiled and churned, as if enraged. A strong wind erupted from within it and blew past me. 
I doubled over, the smell of decay and rotten meat making me wretch and vomit what little food I had left in my stomach. I righted myself and stared defiantly at the giant hell cloud not three feet from me. In my bones, I could feel that elemental evil staring back at me with a level of hatred I had never experienced, let alone imagined to be possible. We stared at each other, it and me, for almost half an hour, it rolling and boiling, me sitting cross-legged on the ground, the tip of the shotgun barrel under my chin, safety off thumb on the trigger. There was no way I was going to become one of those monsters, mindless and insane with hunger. And I'd be damned if that thing was going to do to me what it did to poor Danny. No way. If I was going out, I was going out on my own terms. I'm recording this in the hope that it helps whoever finds this make sense of what happened here. The giant cloud of mist has retreated into the forest. But I know that it's lingering close by. I hear his taunting laughter every now and again. It's gone from using the voices of my dead co-workers to taunt and torture me to using the voices of my loved ones and lovers from long ago. In the space of an hour, I've heard the voices of my first girlfriend, father, cousin, and dead mother call to me, trying to convince me to leave the circle of dwindling fire. There's nothing like hearing the warbly voice of your dead grandmother telling you that you're going to burn in hell for all eternity if you pull that trigger, shrieking to the heavens that God hates suicides. I finally couldn't take it anymore, and responded by screaming out that God doesn't like evil demons from the pits of hell either. There was silence for approximately 30 minutes before the voices picked back up again. I already know that there's no way I'd make it to the plane. Hell, even if I did, I know that nine chances out of ten the radio's been destroyed. Shit, I wouldn't put it past that thing to have destroyed the entire plane to boot. (sighs) I'm running low on gasoline, and the battery on my phone is about to die. Time to wrap this up. I'm out of options and out of time. To the unlucky sons of bitches who end up finding this, finding us, I only have one thing to say. Run. Get out while you still can. If you have any doubt as to what I'm saying, take a look at the bodies. They speak for themselves. Take a look at the surveillance footage. I can only hope that this thing will have moved on by the time you arrive. I don't think it can stay in one place for very long without there being something for it to eat. Fuck, there it goes again. The damn thing calling my name, this time using my voice. Shit, that sounded like it was closer than before. Only a few yards away. It came from behind me. Always from fucking behind me. Pray for my soul. Pray for my soul. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Ghost Notes and would like to take this opportunity to thank you for your continued support. We couldn't do it without you. Now go forth and aid in the conversion of the uninitiated masses.